Our ability to create community is undisputed. We are interconnected as a mosaic, regardless of our ethnicities. And Ascent is about togetherness. I've had the good fortune of working for some of the greatest leaders in, in the late David Stern and Adam Silver, who are these visionaries, surrounding yourself with people that you can learn from and grow from every single day, I think is critical and important. Welcome to API Futures, a podcast by Ascend, where we empower global leaders of tomorrow. Earlier this year, Ascend released a study, the diversity equity gap in the Fortune 500 too few racial minority executives. The report found that the most diverse of the 244 Fortune 500 companies studied were also the least equitable in terms of advancing racial minorities. We're talking Hispanics, Blacks, and Asian Pacific Islanders to the higher executive levels. In this episode, we'll talk about becoming comfortable in your own skin as a leader from Mark Tatum, COO and Deputy Commissioner of the NBA in conversation with our guest host, Franco Finn, hype man and announcer for the Golden State Warriors. Hey, I'm Franco Finn. I'm a San Francisco native, born and raised. I have multiple roles and involved in so many different things. Uh, many people know me as the in-arena host and hype man for the NBA Golden State Warriors, and I'm the first and only Asian American and Filipino American a hype man and host in the NBA. Uh, so that's my fun job, but then also by day, I work at Alaska Airlines, where I manage our community relations, public affairs for the state of California, and also I use my craft and my talents. They all lend itself to uh, all the work that I do in the community, doing fundraisers, events, galas, that sort of thing as a professional auctioneer as well. So everything kind of ties in together. Obviously very proud to be a member of the AAPI community and to represent that fully during many of my jobs. Today, I'm excited to be in conversation with someone I look up to and I'm so proud of in the NBA, and that is Mark Tatum, who's the COO and Deputy Commissioner. So thanks for being here. Well, you know, your upbringing and past experiences, they shape who we become. And You've got quite a very unique and diverse background, Mark. What was it like growing up as a mixed race and multinational person representing uh, you know different ethnicities? Yeah, no, thank you. There's no doubt about that, that my story is a big part of obviously what I've become. And, and it, it, you know, it, it, it was such it was so monumental in how I was raised. And so my dad grew up in Kingston, Jamaica in the island of Jamaica. He came to the U.S. when he was a teenager, joined the U.S. Air Force, went to Vietnam during the war, met my mother, fell in love, uh, got married over there, and had me. So I was actually born in Bong Tao, Vietnam in 1969 in the middle of the war. And you know, one of the uh, most important decisions um, my dad ever made and <laughs> was, was bringing me and my mom back uh, in 1970, back to the United States, where we settled in Brooklyn, New York. And so, you know, I uh, really uh, consider myself fortunate to be one of those uh, children that were born during the Vietnam War that was actually brought back to the U.S. by their American father, who then, um, by the way, my mom and dad are still married to this day. So they've been married for some, you know, 54 uh, years this year. <laughs> 
which is really incredible and still live in Brooklyn, New York in the same house that I grew up in. And so um, really just me being here is a miracle, quite frankly. And, you know, I was raised with these different cultures in my household. There were these two different cultures and through food and different values with lots of similarities. I think, you know, in both my mom's culture where she grew up in Vietnam and my dad in, in, in Jamaica, uh, you know, these common values like uh, the, the the work ethic and ed- the importance of education, the importance of respecting your elders, right? Those were important things that were instilled in me and my brothers growing up. And the differences in food. So at our Thanksgiving table, for example, we would have everything from, you know, jerk chicken and rice and peas and plantains and oxtail to pho. And so, you know, it was it was just this wonderful blend of different cultures that really shaped my perspective. And, you know, the last thing I would say on that is at that time in the early 70s, for example, that combination of black, uh, West Indian and Asian was pretty rare. You know, that was before everyone had heard of Tiger Woods or Naomi Osaka or, you know, Rui Hachimura. It was before there was a term called Blasian that was you know widely known out there. And so that was difficult, I would say, um, as an individual growing up, being from two different cultures, not seeing a lot of people that look like me um, and having to answer a lot of questions about, you know, what are you, who are you um, and those types of things. So it really did shape who I've become as a person and my perspective on the world. Oh, Brooklyn is special. Now, you have the black, immigrant, Afro-Latino, Jewish, Asian. I mean, really, truly really a diverse mix here, but it, it could still have its challenges for a mixed-race kid, right? So how did you get through it? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think growing up in Brooklyn was incredibly helpful to me. And, you know, again, back then, it, it, it's gotten, I think, it's a little bit different today, but back then there were these stark um, neighborhoods, right? Where, um, it, the neighborhood I grew up in in East Flatbush, it was largely black, largely West Indian. Um, and so there, uh, you know, and that, that is where I grew up. That's where I went to elementary school. Um, and I, but I did have questions because many of the other kids who were black, um, particularly or West Indian, I didn't look black, but my dad was black. And I looked Asian. And and again, you know, they they had never seen someone like me. And I sort of stood out in that neighborhood. Um, but I learned to adapt. And and, and I and, and I think what people um, and what I, you know, had to always do is try to explain to people who I was as a person and try to get past that. Uh, you know, I know you may not understand or may not resonate with you as a fifth grader, you know like who I am because I don't fit into that category but let me share with you who I am as a person right and then in junior high school I actually had the opportunity to go to a a junior high school in Bensonhurst Brooklyn which at the time was all white Italian Um, and I literally had to take three public school buses to get from East Flatbush to Bensonhurst and travel through different neighborhoods to get there and and again when I showed up there um, I didn't look like anybody there either. And so there were these curious, you know, these curiosities about, well, who are you and where'd you come from, you know, and having to explain and adapt to that. 
Um, it wasn't until, quite frankly, I got to high school, Brooklyn Tech High School, where it was truly a melting pot of people from not only Brooklyn, but all five boroughs of New York City. And that is where I saw other mixed race kids for the first time and um, and people who were just comfortable in their own skin. And that's really where I think I came into my own um, because people there celebrated the difference. You know, it was, wow, that's cool that you know, you're, you're Black and Asian. And it became there that I became even much more comfortable in my own skin. So um, it was, I think, those unique experiences in Brooklyn, the way that it was set up, that really forced me to deal with the issues of race at a very early age um, and inclusion, quite frankly. And uh, and it wasn't until that high school experience where I started really feeling comfortable with it, where people celebrated it. Um, and that was my first real exposure to that. And, and I think that gave me the confidence to go on and, and do the things I did after that. Okay. Well, with that being said, it's one thing to get through these challenges as a kid, but as a young adult, uh, let, let's talk about that for a little bit. How do we get through it in this workplace? Let's fast forward to your time at maybe a big company like Pepsi when you worked there, or uh, Procter & Gamble, and, and now the NBA. How do you get through challenges of not being seen, especially at the executive level? Yeah, that was, I remember that being one of my first reactions. And that was, you know, over 30 years ago when I started my career at Procter and Gamble. And there weren't other people that looked like me. There weren't, quite frankly, a lot of senior black executives. And there weren't a lot of senior Asian executives. And there weren't a lot of senior Latino or Hispanic executives either. And, but that, that applied pretty much across the board um, in corporate America. And it was my first exposure. To corporate America, because you know, when I went to college, I actually went as a pre-med student, and then I took organic chemistry, and I quickly changed my mind uh, about pursuing a, a, a career in medicine. So I switched into business, and I didn't know what to expect. But but it it was pretty stark at the time. Now I would say, at Proctor, I had generally very positive experiences because you know P and G was at least aware of the need to have a diverse. Um, workplace, and they were starting to really um, uh, create initiatives. And they, for example, they they recruited back then at HBCUs when other institutions weren't really recruiting at HBCUs. They were. Um, many of my colleagues that I worked with at Proctor, um, you know, had had gone to Howard University or Morehouse as an example, um, and we had informal networks amongst the um, the, the people of color at Proctor where they weren't, this is, you know, in the age before ERGs, but we did have informal networks where we would get together and support each other at that time. And I think uh, working for companies like P&G or Pepsi-Cola, because they're such global companies, uh, you know, P&G at the time, I think 50% of their revenue was outside the United States. And so they truly did have this global perspective and appreciated and recognized the need to have people in those particular countries and territories around the world um, to adapt the brands of Procter & Gamble and make them relevant in those countries. And so um, I think I was fortunate to work for a company like Procter & Gamble who really recognized that, who valued it, who supported um, these different initiatives to become more diverse 
uh, and, and to have a workforce that was more representative of who their consumers were, as an example, you know, having them be a, a consumer focused brand. Um, I, I think they saw the shifting demographics in America and knew that they had to have people within the organization that understood the consumer where and, and, and where the consumer was going. So I was really very fortunate to work there um, at, at, again, Procter, Clorox and Pepsi, because I think all those companies um, recognized that early on and started making efforts to make sure that their organizations were becoming more diverse and inclusive. The diversity versus equity paper, we found that the most diverse of the 244 Fortune 500 companies studied were also the least equitable in terms of advancing racial minorities. So basically, these companies that are hiring, uh, you know, the BIPOC folks from Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, it doesn't really mean that they're going to be promoted necessarily or have executive roles. So what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. I've seen the data on this. And, you know, one, I, I, I can share my perspective on why I think this is happening. I think many companies recognize the need to um, become more diverse. And many companies have committed to becoming more diverse. Um, and that, in essence, and that really matters, right? Um, as I talked about early on, it does have an impact on how you feel about an organization when you enter into an organization and you don't see other people that look like you um, as peers, as managers, as senior leaders. And so companies recognize, um, you know, particularly over the last several years, that that is something that has to happen. I think, and, and you can do that through recruitment activities and you can do that through um, aggressive hiring and sourcing. And it's not, again, it, it requires work. And, and I think many companies have done the work to say, how do we improve our numbers here to get more diverse? What I think um, some companies underestimate, quite frankly, though, is um, it's, it's a start to get your organization to look more diverse. Creating equity and focusing on the inclusion of those people, okay, is also required. So you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard the, 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 the phrase, which is, you know, diversity is being asked to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance, right? And there's a big difference and you can have people sitting around the table or you can have people in the building, but if they're not really being sought out to provide their perspective, to provide their opinion, to lead and to own and to run things, um, then you're not going to be successful in retaining that talent. You're not going to be successful in developing that talent and ensuring that, that that talent feels good about the work that they're doing. Um, and there are things that we can do as managers to ensure that happens, to um, ensure that when you're in a meeting, you look around the room um, and you make sure that there are diverse voices in that room and that, um, you know, one of the things I try to do and that we do as a, as an organization here at the NBA is you're in that room for a reason. And what we try to do, and certainly I do this is I pay attention to who is speaking and who's not speaking. Um, and I always give people the opportunity, um, at the end, I kind of go around the room and say, you know, what do you think? What do you think? So that everyone has an opportunity 
to actually voice their opinion to contribute. And it's actually so, so, so amazing that, you know, sometimes the person who has been absorbing it and, and has been listening to the whole conversation, they have some of the most insightful things to say, but perhaps they were hesitant to say it. Um, but by creating an environment and a safe space to uh, allow them to contribute and to say what's on their mind, it really does, I think, rich and enrich in the conversation um, and gets other people to think differently. So there's a difference between, you know, making sure that your organization looks diverse and then truly, truly including people in the conversation, in the discussion, in the decision making. Um, and I think that that's what organizations have to continue uh, to work on and, and create that environment where you're taking advantage of the diverse voices and experiences within your organizations. Well, in order for us to advance, how do we show our intentional allyships within our communities? I mean, we should be uplifting one another and actually getting people who look like us into those dream or advanced leadership roles. But how do we show up for each other in the workplace? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, you know, as I've said before, you know, these values of diversity, inclusion, equality, respect, uh, these are critical, critical values. And, um, and, you know, every single racial minority actually does have challenges and we, uh, you know, have to collectively understand and support each other. I will tell you some of the work that was done, um, that, that, you know, I think about the communities coming together, for example, are around things like Asian hate. And I remember that our Dream in Color ERT and our Apex ERT sort of came together on on these. And I know that there were other, um, you know, black organizations that came together with Asian organizations to say, hey, th how do we deal with these issues here as a collective group and supporting each other in those efforts? Um, that's happening in the workplace. It's happening, again, in society. Uh, and I think it's critical that we all sort of work together to ensure that um, no group gets left behind here. Uh, and, and, and again, I think it's important that organizations have to recognize that each one of us has different challenges and there are different things that, um, that, that, that each one of our, our you know, individual groups are dealing with where companies can really play a part is ensuring that those differences are actually listened to are heard um, and, and that companies are actually dealing with and, and addressing those. And so, you know, I think we have to continue to support each other. We have to continue to advocate for um, making sure that our organizations are diverse, but again, inclusive. Um, in listening to different perspectives. And, and I think it's critical that we all work together on that. Thank you, Franco and Mark, so much for the insightful conversation about the fact that while some companies are hiring for diversity, it doesn't mean that it's being translated in higher levels of employment. Read more of Ascend's findings from the Diversity versus Equity paper by visiting ascendleadership.org. Thanks for listening to API Futures, presented by Ascend where we empower global leaders of tomorrow.